that song is called Acid and Fapping. Or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. Listen to live streaming radio. Or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. TGIF at OMG. Third Fridays of every month at 7.30. Come to OMG on Savory 6th Street for DGIF. Thank gods, it's funny. Every third Friday at OMG, check us out. Free shows, great drink specials, hilarious comics. Every Friday, San Francisco, gouging ya. Here we go, free comedy with Mutiny Radio. You know you love us. Third Fridays of every month, OMG. 6th Street. Come on out with your friends. Mutiny Radio, G-G-I-F at O-M-G. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me sea dogs and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Take a walk on the wild side. Said Holly came from Miami, FLA. Hitchhiked away across USA Plucked her eyebrows on the way Shaved her legs and then he was a she She says, hey babe, take a walk on the wild side Said, hey honey, take a walk on the wild side 
on the island In the back room she was everybody's darling But she never lost her head Even when she was giving head She says, hey babe, take a walk on the wild side Said, hey babe, take a walk on the wild side And the colored girls go do 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 Little Joe never once gave it away Everybody had to pay and pay A hustle here and a hustle there New York City is the place where they said Hey babe, take a walk on the wild side I said, hey Joe, take a walk on the wild side Sugar Pump Fairy came and hit the streets Looking for soul food and a place to eat Went to the Apollo, you should have seen him go, go, go They said, hey sugar, take a walk on the wild side I said, hey babe, take a walk on the wild side All right Ha! Just speeding away Thought she was James Dean for a day Then I guess she had to crash Valium would have helped that fast I said, hey babe, take a walk on the wild side I said, hey honey, take a walk on the wild side And the colored girls say Do, 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 do
Well, that Taft gang, they don't give a hang about me. And that NAM don't give a dang about me. Those GOPs will get a talking to, and some Democrats will go walking to, cause the PACs, they give a hang about me. Oh, yes, I'm union, I'm voting union. My congressman's gone to hear from me come next election. I'm PAC, cause the union gang, they give a hang about me. So I'm voting for the man who gives a damn about me. Yes, I'll vote for him and I'll know he'll vote for me. I'll vote with you and you vote with me and we'll all vote Union and PAC cause the Union gang, they give a hang about me. Oh yes, I'm, I'm Union, I'm voting Union. My congressman's gonna hear from me come next November on PAC cause the Union gang, they give a hang about me. There was a time before liberation When all the witches were mad and moonstruck When the shrinking and the shocking and the mocking were rife We still found each other the ones in the life. There was a time before demonstrations when the queens and fairies were shy and fearful. We ran and we hid from the fist and the knife. And we still found each other, the ones in the life. You know Dorothy? Do you have the time? Have you got a light, dear? Change for a dime? Do you come here often? I see what you mean. I know a tavern where we won't be seen. There was a time before celebration When all my sisters were ghosts and shadows Every femme had a butch, every husband a wife And we still found each other the ones in the life. Do you know, Dorothy? Do you have the time? Have you got a light, dear? Change for a dime. Do you come here often? I see what you mean. I know a tavern where we won't be seen. There was a time back before Stonewall. We heard the jokes and we joined the laughter. 
We lied and we passed and avoided the strife. But we still found each other, the ones in the life. We still found each other. Where have you been today? you traveled across the wide land I've been to the east I've been to the west the north and the south and the roadsides to rest I've been to the centers of commerce and trade and every big city that industry made I've been rolling so long but I'm still in the hole the fever is gone and the coffee is cold, but each mile of highway has calloused my soul, rolling it all home to you. What did you haul today, truck driver man? What did you carry across the wide land? and lumber, parts for machines, castings and cookies, and rose-colored dreams. There was boxes and bags, and barrels of oil, cement by the yard, steel by the coil. I've been rolling so long, but I'm still in the hole. The fever is gone, and the coffee is cold, but each mile of highway has calloused my soul. Rolling it all home to you. Took you so long today, truck driver man. What was the delay as you traveled the land? It rained in the morning, it snowed in the night. Made a left turn, I should have gone right. Watched for the crazies, I watched for the bears, I waited for scales, I was down for repairs, I've been rolling so long, but I'm still in the hole. The fever is gone, and the coffee is cold, but each mile of highway has calloused my soul, rolling it all home to you. What do you think about? truck driver man what are your dreams as you travel the land I dream about playing all day in the sun while somebody younger is making the run I dream about finding two perfect fried eggs arresting my eyes and the waitress's legs never no more nights all alone not being more than an hour from home i've been rolling so long but i'm still in the hole the fever is gone and the coffee is cold but each mile of highway has calloused my soul rolling it all home to you where have you been 
truck driver man Where have you traveled across the wide land? I've been to the east and to the west The north and the south and the roadsides to rest And good morning, mutineers. This is the B, and you are tuned to Mutiny Radio. You might have gotten that impression. Mix that we played. This is June, and it is Gay Pride Month. And a happy Gay Pride Month to all LGBTQ people. Played, of course, began with Lou Reed. Walk on the Wild Side, national anthem, say, of the gay pride movement. And then we followed that with Pete Seeger, a union song, Union Cares About Me. And then 10% sang before Stonewall, a dark song about the life of People in the shadows having to live a secret life. And in some places now in the U.S. still with that same, that same oppression. Forced to live in the shadows. And then we had Truck Driver Man with Larry Penn regular union song about the truck drivers, reminiscent of uh, Billy Joel. Uh, windshield wipers. Yes, this is the B, and this is Labor and Love, where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table where you work, negotiating table, that is, you're on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's only a waste of time. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. I'm going to say a word now. One of our sponsors. Know about Como Mexico no hay dos. That's a that's a Spanish saying. Search that. There's only one Mexico. Como San Jalisco tampoco. For over 40 years, the Ibarra family has been serving the very best in Mexican food to the people of San Francisco. What's your favorite? Tacos? Chilaquiles? 
The Ultimate in Birria, best salsa and chips in town, brought to you before you order. Like your favorite vegetarian. I got them. Find them all and more at San Jalisco. Very hard of Right, come on down to San Jalisco where the food knows. Do that as you go in there and they Magda, Sophie, Helen, Labor and Love sent you. Okay, well, let's get on with our show. As I say, it is Blue Pride Month. Blue Pride Month celebrates a certain happening. In the early morning hours of June 28, 1969, a riot broke out in front of the Stonewall Inn in New York City. The violent protest became known as the Stonewall Riots. watershed moment in the gay rights movement, sparking activism and awareness across the United States. We'll look at the roots of the riots, the events, and their lasting impact. In the 1950s and 60s, homosexuality was still considered sodomy and illegal in 49 states. The punishments varied greatly by state, ranging from heavy fines to imprisonment. In society, members of the gay community were often subject to violence and discrimination. In New York City, Gay bars were havens sexual orientations and gender identities, places where they could avoid harassment and violence. The Stonewall Inn served as a popular refuge. The Stonewall Inn was owned by the Mafia. The Mafia bribed the police to look the other way. In turn, the Mafia made money overcharging patrons for drinks. Even so, the patrons were not fully safe from homophobia and discrimination. The Mafia would extort wealthy patrons, threatening to out them to their employers and families. Despite the Mafia's bribes, the police still regularly raided the Stonewall Inn and other gay bars, charging them with solicitation of homosexual relations. Trans and other gender nonconforming people were also targeted, subjected to violence, and arrested if they weren't wearing what the police deemed gender-appropriate clothing. This oppression and mistreatment came to a head in the early morning hours of June 28th, 1969. Nine police officers entered the Stonewall Inn in a raid. The patrons were fed up. As the police roughly tried to arrest bartenders and customers, many resisted. Outside the bar, people in the hundreds began rioting. They threw bottles at the police and pushed through the barricades. The police officers retreated from the crowd and locked themselves inside the Stonewall Inn. Rioters responded by setting the bar on fire. Police reinforcement arrived, and the original officers managed to get out of the burning bar. Meanwhile, the angry mob had grown into thousands. Eventually, the police were able to get the crowd to disperse, but it didn't last long. The riots continued until July 1st. While some criticized the violent and destructive riots, others pointed to the brutality and unjust treatment of the gay community. 
This large-scale defiance made a massive impact on society. The Stonewall Riots were the beginning of the modern gay liberation movement, which also brought attention to others marginalized for their sexual or gender orientation. The riots sparked the formation of the Gay Liberation Front, the first group to publicly advocate for equal gay rights. On the one-year anniversary of the riots, they also organized the first Gay Pride Parade. Today, Pride events are still held on the anniversary of the Stonewall Riots in cities around the country and even the world. In 2016, President Obama made the Stonewall Inn and the area outside where the riots broke out a national monument. This became the first national monument celebrating gay history. The Stonewall Riots may have been violent, but they marked a pivotal moment in history. No longer would people quietly endure the stigma associated with their sexual and gender orientations. Through the Stonewall Riots, the gay rights movement gained mainstream visibility and a momentum that continues to this day. Okay, there's a little background on the uh, Stonewall Riots. Totalmente para qué Si la primera vez que entregué mi corazón Me equivoqué No me vuelvo a enamorar No me vuelvo a enamorar No me vuelvo a enamorar Totalmente para qué Si la primera vez que entregué mi corazón Me equivoqué No me vuelvo a enamorar
me vuelvo a enamorar. Totalmente para qué. quiere llegar a, a, sobre todo en la cosa del canto, en todas las artes, pero especialmente el mensaje del cantar. Eh, amo en ustedes una cosa muy importante. Chabela Vargas, mexican folk singer, very well known in the 50s, came out of gay and song is called La Llorona. Todos me dicen el negro llorona, negro. Las flores de 
el campo santo no sé qué tienen las flores llorona las flores del campo santo que cuando las mueve el viento llorona parece que están llorando que cuando las mueve el viento llorona parece que están llorando Quieres, 
llorona quiera más si ya te he dado la vida llorona Chabela Vargas Chabela Vargas um, very well known singer you can't say that rough famous for her that gravelly Play another rocker now. I couldn't think of her. Mr. Rosetta Tharp. <laughs> the concert she gave in England. Precious memories. No. Lonesome Road. This train. Yeah. And I'm going to see how many going to ride on it. This train is a clean train. This
this train Don't pull no wankers This train Uh-uh I said this train Don't pull no wankers This train No, 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 no This train Don't pull no wankers No crap shooter And no whiskey drinkers it's a clean train, you know this train, don't pull no jokers, this train, this train, don't pull no jokers, this train, this train, don't pull no jokers, no tobacco, Chewers and no cigar smokers because uh, this train is a clean train. You know this train. Let's ride the train. This train is on the way to glory. This train.
get in. I know it rain, you know it rain. Rain too long, all night long. Rain all day, rain all night. Yes, didn't it? You know we did, or didn't it? Oh my Lord, how it rained! Let me tell you something, Uncle Joe. And that was a two by Sister Rosetta. Th- Tharp, one of the real uh, innovative pioneers of rock and roll, blues guitar, 40s and 50s, someone who really didn't get the kind of attention he should have gotten at the time. Track gave guitar players, godmother of rock and roll. Okay, well, this is Labor and Love, and this is where we tell you how it is. So let's talk a little bit about labor. Labor movement, worldwide labor movement. Find that. Solidarity movement. Radio labor. Weekly worldwide labor report. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, June 9th, 2023. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, the opening of the UN's International Labor Organization Conference in Geneva. The racism of microaggressions. The Labor Start report about union immense and rapid. Without our brain and muscle, not a single wheel can turn. So put your hands together, all under one umbrella. It's time for unity, solidarity forever. This is Radio Labor. The organization which sets minimum labor standards to be adopted by countries around the world has begun its annual conference in Geneva this week. The International Labor Organization is the UN agency focused on matters of work in the world. It develops international laws called conventions, which its 187 member countries can add to their legislative structures. The ILO is strongly supported by the international labor movement. The chair of the workers' group at the ILO, Catalin Pasquier, addressed the conference delegates. It's good to see so many of you here in Geneva for what is the first fully in-person labor conference since 2019, which is four years ago. I hope the human connection brings the positivism, hope and creativity that we need to reach powerful conclusions that demonstrate our joint determination to shape the future of work, to benefit all people, indeed to provide social justice for all. We can expect many tough discussions during this conference. 
But let us never lose sight of the challenges outside these walls that workers are facing in everyday life, as well as challenges before employers and governments to achieve just transitions to a peaceful and prosperous future that sometimes today seems to elude us. There is the existential threat of climate change in recent years overshadowed by a global health crisis. Meanwhile, natural disasters caused by climate change are becoming more prominent around the world with floods and droughts, cyclones and heat waves, with the poorest people and regions suffering most, leading inevitably also to an increase in migratory flows. Wars continue to rage and are at risk of further escalation with the threat of nuclear annihilation looming. This year, the so-called doomsday clock stands at 90 seconds to midnight, the closest to global nuclear catastrophe it has ever been. Massive investments in a new nuclear and conventional arms race are undermining investments in common security and life on our planet. Geopolitical tension continues to weaken multilateralism's capacity to tackle our world's common problems. Daunting news messages warn us that artificial intelligence will overtake humanity if we don't take control. Among growing inequality, hunger, poverty and child labor, a growing group of disenfranchised people have lost faith and confidence in their political leaders. Extremism and populism are on the rise. Freedom of association and collective bargaining remain the most important and challenging fundamental rights to be achieved, especially as they are in the ILO, the enabling rights necessary to achieve all other rights. Changes in work patterns and the abusive use of temporary and short-term contracts have resulted in massive job insecurity and undermined freedom of association, collective bargaining and access to labor protection. In this digital age of platform gig and telework, working time requires us to think how the minimum standards enshrined in the conventions and recommendations can effectively be respected in the contemporary world of work. In our view, this cannot be done without making sure that people are guaranteed a living wage without having to work overtime. In terms of protection of the rights of young workers in their transition to decent jobs, we look forward to the second year discussion with a view to the adoption of a recommendation on quality apprenticeships. Clearly, the recommendation should aim to elevate the global standard for apprenticeships to protect our youngsters from exploitation rather than lower the standard under pressure of the market demand for cheap labor at the expense of their and therefore also our future. They may be small, but microaggressive racist comments in the workplace can have big effects on racialized or marginalized people. To explore the effects of microaggression, the International Labour Organization has produced a book which discusses the topic. The ILO is the specialized agency of the United Nations focused on matters of work in the world. It recently produced a podcast which explored microaggression at work. The podcast was hosted by Rosalind Yard, the chief of news and media in the ILO's Department of Communication. 
Her guest was Marlian Lopez, the coordinator of the Interdisciplinary Studies in Sexuality program at the Simone de Beauvoir Institute at Concordia University in Montreal. Ms. Lopez is also vice president of the Fédération des Femmes du Québec. Here's Ms. Yard with her first question for Ms. Lopez. It seems we hear the buzzwords diversity and inclusion all the time and the need to create more inclusive labor markets for all. But how does that reflect in workplaces? Is the overt racism of previous eras a thing of the past, or is there still much work to be done to achieve a level playing field in the world of work? The ILO has recently published a book called The Future of Diversity. It explores the biases and stereotypes that lead to discrimination and violence in workplaces and the policies that are needed to address structural inequalities. With me is, is Marlian Lopez, coordinator of the Simone de Beauvoir Institute at Concordia University, Montreal, Canada. Marlian is the co-author of one of the chapters in the book, which explores black women's experiences in feminist workplaces. Marlian, in this book, The Future of Diversity, you focus on black women in feminist workplaces and also address the issue of violence in the workplace, which includes microaggressions. Can, can you explain, uh, Marlene, what this actually means? In the context of black women's experience, we talk about gendered and racial aggressions and how they intersect. So for us, microaggressions are harmful, can be harmful comments or actions that usually target minority groups. So in our chapter, we address those that target black women. And they are called microaggressions because they are usually normalized in the workplace. They are frequent and repeated, but they're not micro in their impact. They have proven to have very harmful impact on black women's, in black women's life, mental health, physical health, etc., so, I mean, can you give some examples? I know that in, in, the, in your chapter, there are quite a few examples. We interviewed several Black women in our research, and a lot of anecdotes came out of experience of microaggressions, such as comments about hair, skin, body figure, comments about Black men, addressing a Black woman as being scary or intimidating, so these are some of some of the examples that came up in our research. Do you believe there will ever be real change or will the research, will the reports, will they just sit gathering dust? Or, I don't want to be pessimistic, but do you see, do, do you imagine that there'll be some change? Yeah, I'm hopeful, but I'm hopeful in the context of folks that are working beyond diversity towards equity because like I stated before, we're talking about systemic forms of discrimination and just by embracing diversity, we're not going to address the systemic forms, the historic forms of discrimination and the barrier, the historic barriers that have affected minority groups in the workplace. So while it's is important to value diversity, it is insufficient in my opinion. There needs to be concrete work towards equity in order for, in the long term, in a sustainable way, minority groups benefit and are able to move and flourish within the, the workplace. Here with his report about union events is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. This week, our top story section included links to the news that union leader Selma Atebe 
has been released after almost a year in a Turkish prison. Comrade Selma, an activist and chair of the Health and Social Care Workers Union's Women's Commission, will remain under house arrest, but this is seen as a big step towards complete freedom. Other top stories this week include the latest national one-day walkout against pension rollbacks in France, calls for Iran to be expelled from the International Labour Organization, and a survey of sex workers' unions in several countries, which reveals that queer workers are taking on significant leadership positions. A random sample from our news pages includes articles about the first crop of students to complete a union internship program in Antigua and Barbuda, a watershed decision in Kenya that requires Meta to provide mental health care to Facebook and Instagram moderators, and the news that Romanian healthcare workers are joining the wave of strikes by overstressed co-workers around the world. But my favorite top story of the week came from our Spanish-language news page, where the details of a union plan to reduce plastic pollution in Spain appeared. On our Working Women news page, you'll find stories about the union leaders honored for making change in New York's Broadway theater industry, about the growing concern that garment workers in Bangladesh aren't consuming enough calories to maintain their body weight given the pace of work imposed by their employers, and an update on the push to provide workplace supports for menopausal women in the United Kingdom. Stories appearing on our Health and Safety page in Newswire this week include the New Zealand Union's bargaining table push on health and safety issues, what the out-of-control forest fires burning across Canada mean for that country's firefighters, and the results of a survey by Global Union Federation, Uni, on the effects of shift work on building maintenance workers. Our current photo of the week is a shot of Swiss workers preparing for next week's national strike by women workers. Look for lots of coverage of that strike on Labor Start next Wednesday and on Thursday. This is Derek Blackheader from Labor Start reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is Ruben Benny Esguera and friends with a new Solidarity Forever. No more division, no, we're bringing a new vision, and it's just in time from ashes, we give birth a new tradition, solidarity forever with a new millennium flavor, now we're resurrecting it, one century later, keep our feet fixed on the past, in order to stay rooted in our minds, eye on tomorrow, so that today we get through this, so that one day we're victorious, so just gather now, come here, divisions are created by those who doubt and fear, we give thanks to all the workers who put it all on the line, those who took it to the streets, moving crowds with conscious rhymes, those who gave their lives, give thanks to those who made lost, lost only work for those who make them not break them be patient the best way to protect your rights is by always knowing your rights without our brain and muscle not a single wheel can turn so put your hands together all under one umbrella it's time for unity solidarity forever Your profits 
world's never seen to help the people prosper. Your money's being hoarded and the people are unsupported. Social welfare's been aborted, labor crimes go unreported. When we try to fight back, it seems we can't afford it. We try to be united, but they're implementing laws that are keeping us divided. They're commodifying labor, then they're bidding for the lowest. They're thinking that it's clever, but we know it's something better. Solidarity forever. Now jobs are disappearing and all we're ever hearing is pay a lot more, get paid a little less. Work a little harder, then work a little longer, but we're taking it no longer. We're decided we're uniting, cause together we are stronger. The unions got our back, CBAs, protections, better wages, a fact. So we're making our choice and we're making some noise. We're walking with poise and we're raising our voice. We're singing. And that's it. Labor news you can use. I'm Mark Boulanger. Thank you for listening. And remember. That's our world labor report. Labor figures, Bayard Rustin, and then we're going to follow that up with a brief biography of Oscar Wilde, great writer. What happened to him? Why is he not alive? That's obvious. Okay, so we'll get on with that. Civil rights issues. Bayard Rustin was one of the most important figures in the African-American struggle for civil rights and freedom. He organized the 1963 March on Washington. He helped Dr. King translate the philosophy of nonviolence into direct action. But a lot of people don't know his name, largely because he was a gay man. My name is Walter Nagel, and Bayard Rustin was the love of my life. I met Bayard on a corner at 42nd Street and 7th Avenue, Times Square, in 1977. I was 27 years old and he was 65. There was this tall, handsome, very attractive man standing next to me and we looked at each other and I was pretty much toast. 
Bayard was open about his being gay, really from his teenage years. He just believed in being his authentic self and speaking his own truth. Bayard always said that Dr. King didn't really have a personal problem with him being gay. Dr. King really needed Bayard at different times because Bayard was a person of great creativity, great intellect, and he was doing things for the movement that really nobody else could do. After the March on Washington, he became a much more visible figure. He was really out there in the thick of the movement. We're interested in making it possible for people to live like human beings. About the so-called disruptive child. But as the movement took off, he needed to step back and get out of the limelight for a while so that people wouldn't be distracted by the fact that he was gay. That was really the piece that kept him from rising in the movement the way he could have had he not been. If you were to look at Bayard and me, on the surface, there were great differences. There was an age difference. There was a race difference. But we shared a deep bond and a deep love for each other. In 1982, Bayard adopted me so that we would have some legal protections under the law. We were legal, father and son. This was a time when gay couples had no protections, no rights. Other people were maybe a little shocked. It didn't really matter to us. Bayard died in August of 1987. We decided to organize a small private foundation in his memory, the Bayard Reston Fund. It was really designed to get Bayard into the history books. He didn't have the visibility of a Dr. King or of a Malcolm X. He would want to be remembered for being a person that played a great role in making social change to this country. We've got Bayard Rustin himself singing Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen. Nobody knows the trouble I see. Nobody knows my sorrow. Trouble I 
African-American gay man, and to a certain degree as a Quaker, uh, Byard was faced with discrimination and with prejudice throughout his life, certainly through the early part of his life. Uh, being any of those things, including being Quaker, was not the most common thing in the American society. And so he struggled uh, with discrimination in the larger society, but also in the religious community and within the Quaker community itself. And certainly as a gay man, I mean, there was no question that he was discriminated against. Um, not necessarily always in this, I would say, crude or overt uh, kind of fashion, but, you know, there was always this kind of subtle undertone about, well, you know, what do we... What do we do with Bart? My name is Walter Nagel. I live in New York City, in Manhattan. I am currently employed by the Religious Society of Friends, the New York Yearly Meeting. Um, I am not officially a Quaker, and I'm not a member of a monthly meeting, but my late partner, Byard Rustin, was uh, a longtime member of 15th Street Meeting here in New York City. Byard Rustin was an African-American gay male Quaker who was very influential in the African-American civil rights movement in our country. That is primarily what people would associate him with, because he was the organizer of the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, where Dr. King gave his most famous speech. But Byard had been involved in struggles for social justice, you know, for 20, 20 plus years before that, and certainly 25 years after that. Byard was working very closely with the well, he was in the Fellowship of Reconciliation, and he was on the staff of the Fellowship of Reconciliation. And in 1953, Byard was on a speaking engagement in Pasadena, California, for the American Friends Service Committee, and he was arrested uh, on a moral, what was then called a morals charge. He was caught having uh, sexual relations in a public place. Uh, it was in the middle of the night. It was on a dark street. Uh, it was not out in broad daylight and Saturday afternoon or anything like that. But nevertheless, he was arrested. And I guess it was in 1953 or 1954, shortly before the African-American struggle really took off in Montgomery, a small group of Quakers gathered at Pendle Hill Study Center in Pennsylvania to produce a document 
on what was then called the, the Cold War, the struggle between the United States and the Soviet Union. And after several days of meeting and discernment and discussion, they produced a document called Speak Truth to Power, which I have right here. Despite the fact that Bayard was a very important part of that group, in fact, he has been credited with coining the phrase Speak Truth to Power, his name was left off the document. So, you know, I mean, I see that as a, certainly as a form of discrimination and persecution, if you will, because, you know, all of the people, or most of the people, at least the ones that I've spoken to on the committee, felt that he made an invaluable contribution to that document, and it would not have been the document that it was without Byard's contribution. Now, in all fairness to the AFSC, uh, they restored his name to the document in 2012, which was the centennial uh, year of Byard's birth. Well, when people think about Bayard Rustin, I think there are a couple of things that are important which might not be so readily available when you Google him, if you will, or when you do some of the research. Uh, one of them, I think, certainly is the importance of the Quaker values, the Quaker value system that was instilled in him as a young person. Uh, Bayard believed in the oneness of the human family, in the brotherhood, sisterhood of all people. He believed in the power of nonviolence, which comes out of that belief in the oneness of all people. And he saw everybody as his brothers and sisters. It was not just about black folks or gay folks or any, any subgroup that he might have been a member of. He saw everybody uh, certainly as equal in the eyes of the divine, if you will. The other thing I think that would be important is that, you know, Byron was a very gentle and loving and fun, very humorous person. You know, he worked, he worked with young people. He recruited young people. And young people flocked to him because at that time, he was still seen as a very radical, radical figure. Uh, and I think young people tend to be attracted to those most radical voices. And so a lot of those people remember, remember him fondly, even though some of them disagreed with him later on and as they developed and they went their separate ways from some of Byard's ideas. But they still remembered that uh, quality of his uh, helping them. And so his... You know, he continues, his voice continues to be one that people uh, want to hear from and listen to uh, and, and, and serve as a source of inspiration. Thanks for watching this Quaker Speak video. We release a new video every other Thursday. You can watch all our videos in this playlist here. You can subscribe. A sort of a biography there, <clears throat> composite biography of Bayard Rustin, Pennsylvanian, was in school, in high school, and uh, led demonstrations about the food in the cafeteria. He was a, an organizer from the very beginning. 
unfortunately, the way laws were at that time, the way prejudice was against gay people, the fact that he was gay and openly gay was really a penalty. It kept him from. It kept him from rising in the movement and in in his life. At one point, nineteen. Early 1950s, uh, Adam Clayton Powell, co and who was a congressman from Harlem, and Dwight Eisenhower threatened to out fired Rustin and spread the rumor that he was a, he and uh, Martin Luther King were homosexual partners. So King was forced to cut ties with Rustin, although informally Rustin maintained a lot of influence within the movement. The thing about Rustin, he was also involved with the AF of L, spokesman AF of L to the black community and to the worker community. Covered both. He checked both boxes. Fired Rustin. Um, he was a hero. Hero in the sense that a life that a lot of people would like to have for themselves. March on Washington, 1963, wouldn't have happened without Rustin's Okay, so Bayard Rustin, let's listen to a little music. All right, let's get on now with Oscar Wilde. Who was Oscar Wilde? Uh, an Irish writer. Very much uh, excellent playwright, host of London. And uh, he got involved with a young man named Lord Alfred Douglas. Aaron Lies a tale. The most famous playwright in the English-speaking world, Oscar Wilde, presented his new play, The Importance of Being Earnest, 
in London at St James's Theatre. The audience was packed with celebrities, aristocrats and famous politicians, eagerly awaiting another triumph from a man universally heralded as a genius. At the end of the performance, there was a standing ovation. Critics adored the play, and so did audiences, making it Wilde's fourth major success in only three years. Yet, only a few short months later, Wilde was bankrupt and about to be imprisoned. His reputation was in tatters and his life ruined beyond repair. It was, as everyone then and now agreed, a tragedy. The swift fall of a great man due to a small but fateful slip. The story of how Oscar Wilde went from celebrity playwright to prisoner in such a short space of time has much to teach us about disgrace and infamy. We don't have to be acclaimed to understand that Wilde's poignant tragedy urges us to abandon our normal moralism and have sympathy for those who stray. It calls for us to extend our love not just to those who obviously deserve it, but precisely to those who seem not to. Wilde's tragedy began several years earlier, when he was introduced to a beguiling young man named Lord Alfred Douglas. Douglas, known to family and friends as Bosey, was extremely handsome, charming and arrogant. By 1892, a year after they'd met, the two men had fallen profoundly in love. Although Wilde was married with two children, he spent much of his time with Bosey. They travelled together, stayed in hotels and hosted large dinners for their friends. By 1894, the pair were constantly seen together in public and rumours of their love affair had spread as far as Bosey's father, the Marquis of Queensbury. The Marquis was a cruel, aggressive character known for inventing the Queensbury rules of amateur boxing. Having decided that Wilde was corrupting his son, he demanded that the pair stop seeing each other. When Wilde refused, Queensbury began to hound him across London, threatening violence against restaurant hotel managers if they allowed Wilde and Bosey onto the premises. Queensbury booked a seat for the opening night of the importance of being earnest. He planned to throw a bouquet of rotting vegetables at Wilde when he took to the stage. When Wilde heard about the stunt, he had him barred from the theatre and Queensbury flew into a rage. He left a calling card which publicly accused Wilde of having sex with other men. Since homosexuality was illegal and deeply frowned upon in Victorian society, this was a dangerous accusation. Seeing no end to Queensbury's bullying behaviour, Wilde decided to take legal action. By suing Queensbury for libel, Wilde hoped to clear his name and put an end to the harassment. When the trial began, Wilde was confident. He took to the stand and gave witty, distracting answers during his cross-examination. Within a few days, however, the tide had turned against him. It became clear that Queensbury's lawyers had hired private detectives to uncover an uncomfortable truth, that both Wilde and Bosey had hired male prostitutes. Some had even blackmailed Wilde in the past, successfully extorting money from him in return for their silence. The trial was hopeless and Wilde withdrew his case, but events had spiralled beyond his control and Wilde was soon arrested on charges of gross indecency. The legal costs left him bankrupt and theatres were forced to abandon his plays. Wilde's criminal trial began at the Old Bailey on April the 26th. He faced 25 charges, all of which surrounded his sexual relationships with younger men. Wilde continued to deny the allegations and the jury could not reach a verdict. But when the prosecution were allowed to try Wilde a second time, he was eventually found guilty. The judge said at his sentencing, 
It is the worst case I have ever tried. I shall pass the severest sentence that the law allows. Wilde was sentenced to two years of hard labour. Inmates in London's Pentonville prison, where he was sent, spent six hours a day walking on a heavy treadmill or untangling old rope using their hands and knees. For someone of Wilde's luxurious background, it was an impossible hardship. His bed was a hard plank which made it difficult to fall asleep. Prisoners were kept alone in their cells and barred from talking to one another. Wilde suffered from dysentery and became physically very frail. After six months, he was transferred to Reading Jail. As he stood on the central platform of Clapham Junction, with handcuffs around his wrists, passers-by began to recognise the celebrity playwright. They laughed and mocked. Some even spat at him. For half an hour I stood there, Wilde wrote afterwards, in the grey November rain, surrounded by a jeering mob. For a year after that was done to me, I wept every day at the same hour and for the same space of time. During his last year in prison, Wilde wrote an anguished essay, De Profundis. I, once a lord of language, have no words in which to express my anguish and my shame. Terrible as was what the world did to me, what I did to myself was far more terrible still. The gods had given me almost everything, but I let myself be lured into long spells of senseless and sensual ease. I allowed pleasure to dominate me. I ended in horrible disgrace. There is only one thing for me now, absolute humility. I have lain in prison for nearly two years. I have passed through every possible mood of suffering. The only people I would care to be with now are artists and people who have suffered, those who know what beauty is and those who know what sorrow is. Nobody else interests me. In May 1897, Wilde was finally released. He set sail for Dieppe in France the very same day. His wife Constance had changed her name and moved abroad with their two sons, Vivian, now 11, and Cyril, 12. Wilde would never see his children again. He missed them every day. Constance agreed to send him money on the condition that he end his relationship with Bosie, but only a few months later the pair reunited and the money stopped. They moved to Naples and Wilde began using the name Sebastian Melmoth, inspired by the great Christian martyr Saint Sebastian and a character from a Gothic novel who had sold his soul to the devil. They hoped to find privacy abroad, but the scandal seemed to follow them wherever they went. English patrons recognised them in hotels and demanded that they be turned away. After Constance stopped sending money, Bosie's mother offered to pay their debts if he returned home and the pair once again parted ways. Scorned by many of his former friends, Wilde moved to Paris where he lived in relative poverty. He spent most of his time and money in bars and cafes, borrowing money wherever he could and drinking heavily. His weight ballooned and his conversation dragged. He was slowly inebriating himself to death. When a friend suggested he try to write another comic play, he replied, I have lost the mainspring of life and art. I have pleasures and passions, but the joy of life is gone. His final piece of writing, a poem, The Ballad of Reading Jail, was published in 1898. The author's name was listed as C33, Wilde's cell block and cell number from his time in the prison. Towards the end of 1900, Wilde had developed meningitis and became gravely ill. A Catholic priest visited his hotel and baptised him into the church. He died the following day, age 46. More than a century later, in 2017, a law was passed to exonerate those who had been convicted due to their sexuality. 
and Oscar Wilde received an official pardon from the UK government. It is hugely important, declared a government minister, that we pardon people convicted of historical sexual offences who would be innocent of any crime today. Our society has become generous towards Wilde's specific behaviour, but it remains moralistic towards a huge number of other people's and ways of life. Many of us would, across the ages, want to comfort and befriend Oscar Wilde. It's a touching hope, but one that would be best employed in extending understanding to all those less talented and less witty figures who are, right now, facing grave difficulties and still deserve compassion. That would be true civilization and a world in which Wilde's horrifying downfall had not been in vain. Our has arranged. Okay, there's a story of Oscar Wilde, um, a renowned playwright. His plays are often are are regularly performed. A lot of them are classic. English theater. Wild again at the wrong time and, and really misplayed himself. I don't think he seems like he didn't understand the great power that society had over him. Notoriety Also a writer So yeah, Oscar Wilde fired Rustin. Let's go on now. Socialism. This is Francesca Fiorentino, Republican Exchange Force Governor. Want the working class to seize the means of production and democratize the economy? Okay, that is socialism, and it sounds pretty good. The accusation of socialism is part of the playbook the GOP is now running against Joe Biden and his climate plan. Except, we've been here before. I'm Francesca Fiorentini, and we're looking at how the right has historically red-baited any social programs that threaten to help people. Programs that eventually become incredibly popular, and ones Republicans have no alternative to. They whine while so-called socialism works. Joe Biden's climate plan is not the Green New Deal, but it is incredibly ambitious, which thank God, because here in California, the wildfires are making everything smell like barbecue, threatening both our lives and our commitment to vegetarianism. Mama want a brisket. After a joint task force with Bernie Sanders supporters like AOC and members of the Sunrise Movement, Biden's climate plan is now a $2 trillion commitment that includes eliminating carbon pollution from power plants by 2035, revolutionizing the railroad and municipal transit systems, building solar and wind farms, and by 2030 getting to net zero greenhouse gas emissions for new buildings. Now, I tried to find the part of his plan Trump was talking about where Biden would tear down buildings and rebuild them with tiny little windows. It's not there. 
there, Don. Biden won't give you prison windows. The state of New York will. And that climate plan has triggered the right's most predictable defense mechanism to any whiff of progress. He signed on to Bernie Sanders' crazy 110-page communist manifesto. The Biden Sanders communist manifesto. No more oil, no more gas, no more coal. It's in writing, right. the Bolshevik Bernie Biden manifesto. So remember, when Biden says, come on, man, we all know that the man stands for manifesto and the come on stands for communist. It's the communist manifesto. We're putting the pieces together, people. Look, despite also being born in the 19th century, Joe Biden is actually not Karl Marx. Though he collaborated with some supporters of a Green New Deal, Biden's plan leaves out the more transformative parts of it, such as a federal jobs guarantee. And yet, the attacks on Biden's climate plan are reminiscent of right-wing attacks on other bold social plans enacted by Democratic presidents. Plans that are so popular now, the right can't openly campaign against them. Like Social Security, aka old people allowance, that Americans pay into during their working years and have access to once they turn 62. Democratic President Franklin Delano Roosevelt passed Social Security in 1935 as part of the New Deal reforms. The New Deal not only established a robust social safety net, it also gave jobs to millions of unemployed Americans in building things like bridges, airports, and schools. And truth be told, the New Deal ended up saving the market's ass. In 1933, unemployment was around 22%, but by 1940, it was less than half that. Still, the promise of a New Deal was fought tooth and nail by FDR's opponent in 1932, Republican President Herbert Hoover, who called the proposed programs, you guessed it, socialist and warned of a march to Moscow. That red baiting didn't win Hoover re-election, and yet Republican Alf Landon tried the same tactic when he ran against FDR four years later, as exemplified in this campaign ad where a Democratic donkey drinks a bottle of Russian vodka. Russia couldn't stand that stuff, but the jackass will try anything. Oh, well, who'll be the day and headache tomorrow? There goes the jackass running wild. The dynamite must have gone to his head and some to his feet. <laughs> I do not know what that donkey drank, but can we get some for Joe Biden? The problem is neither Hoover nor Landon had a better plan to help America out of the depression, even though they claimed to be committed to helping working people, something FDR called smooth evasion as he mocked the right with the utmost shade. And let me warn the nation against the smooth evasion that says, of course we believe these things, we believe in social security, cross our hearts and hope to die. But we do not like the way the present administration is doing them. Just turn them over to us. We will do all of them. The doing of them will not cost anybody anything. Okay, Franklin's got some zingers. Can we get some of that for Biden? Even though Landon called Social Security a fraud on the working man, it was incredibly popular and effective, like helping people live longer. By 2010, American men's life expectancy increased by 17 years. Social Security gave Americans their golden years. And then the right was apparently so bitter about it, it created an entire news network dedicated to filling those years with fear. 80 years later and more than 65 million Americans now benefit from Social Security. It's exceptionally important to retirees, 57% of whom say it's a major source of their income. 
Yet Republicans continue to try and cut it, despite the fact that 74% of Americans say Social Security benefits shouldn't be reduced. When Trump floated a budget last year that proposed cutting Social Security by $26 billion, his economic advisor called it political suicide, which if you're this president, sounds like a dare. Cause let's be real, the guy's been trying all kinds of political suicide since he assumed office and nothing seems to be working. He's just living a presidential groundhog day. No matter how creative the suicide, he simply won't die politically. Take another wildly popular FDR led policy, the GI Bill. The GI Bill guaranteed veterans unemployment benefits, low interest home and business loans, and federal aid for education. At the time, the GI Bill was opposed by some Republican lawmakers, in part because giving vets a college education was seen as sending them to institutions with crackpot long-haired professors and radicals. Yeah, you wouldn't want soldiers who just defeated Hitler and fascism to go to college and become Antifa. Republicans also opposed the GI Bill because they claimed it would help lazy veterans and spoil them, which, if you're just catching up on America, is racist code for black people. But decades after its implementation, the GI Bill has been consistently supported by politicians on both sides of the aisle, including Republican presidents. Earlier this year, I was pleased to sign a piece of legislation, a GI Bill for the 21st century. That's right. We're finally sending drones college. It just joshing. But fun fact, before signing that GI Bill, W threatened to veto extra unemployment benefits. Of course, he made sure that our troops would never qualify for unemployment benefits by just inventing wars for them to fight in. I am a job creator. Which brings us to healthcare, a battle Republicans have fought and died in for generations. Politically. Like Medicare, healthcare for the elderly, and Medicaid, healthcare for the poor and disabled. Both were started under Democrat. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Well, the 2024 presidential race is becoming more crowded. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie and former Vice Socialism. Want clean air? Socialism. Want the work politically. Like Medicare, health care for the elderly, and Medicaid, health care for the poor and disabled. Both were started under Democratic President Lyndon B. Johnson's Great Society, which built on FDR's New Deal aimed at tackling racial and economic injustice. And that meant they were attacked by the right. Presidential candidate Bob Dole bragged that he voted against Medicare. George H.W. Bush called it socialized medicine. Even an actor in California who wasn't yet in politics gave a radio address claiming government-subsidized health care would take away a doctor's freedom. From here, it's a short step to all the rest of socialism. I know how I'd feel if you, my fellow citizens, decided that to be an actor, I had to become a government employee and work in a national theater. Honestly, hindsight 2020, the American people would have done a lot better if the government had subsidized the man-chimp bromance genre well into the 80s. So Reagan would have remained an employable actor and therefore would have never run for office, reformed welfare, began mass incarceration, or given us crippling economic austerity. I mean, let's be real. Fast forward to today. Despite their expense, Medicare and Medicaid are incredibly popular, with a majority of Americans supporting both. And while Republicans have tried over the years to kneecap the programs through budget cuts and a variety of other methods, it's become too toxic to openly campaign on cutting either. Which is why, even though he wants a budget that cuts over a trillion dollars from Medicare and Medicaid, Trump also makes contradictory promises like this. We will protect Medicare and Social Security and that is a pledge from the entire 
Republican Party. I really wish they had panned over to whoever Trump was pointing at, because I'm pretty sure it was Mitch McConnell going, Me? Oh. 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 <laughs> <laughs> then came the creme de la Kremlin, the belle of the Bolsheviks, the cream of the Trotsky, the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, another program that Republicans regularly called socialized medicine, when in fact it gives a big boost to private insurance companies. And it's a plan that despite wanting to overturn, they still have no alternative for. Just listen to then Indiana Representative Mike Pence in 2009, decrying the ACA based on how expensive Medicare is. Medicare, when it was launched in 1965, uh, was projected, I think, to cost $9 billion a year by 1990. It ended up costing seven times that. We're increasing the burden on our grandchildren enormously if we create a government-run plan. No debate on that, although I don't know that you want to go back to Indiana and campaign against Medicare. Oh, no, I, no, I support Medicare. Oh, no, I support Medicare because, well, I have to. Wow, Pence used to be pretty animated. I guess playing wingman to a racist autocrat has made him completely dead inside. Why else would a fly land on him for two minutes? The ACA may be... Jessica Fiorentini there. We're going to switch over now to some labor history. Labor history in two. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1929. That was the day that police chief Orville Ederholt was shot and killed at a camp of striking textile workers in Gastonia, North Carolina. The textile mills had fallen on hard times in the late 1920s. During World War I, demand for cloth for uniforms had sent the industry booming. But at the end of the war, orders dried up. Then, to make matters worse, new fashion trends had women wearing shorter skirts, further cutting demand. In response, the mill owners at the Lorry Mill began what was called the stretch out. They laid off numerous workers and demanded that those who remained worked faster without raising wages or in many cases, cutting workers pay. The National Textile Workers Union recognized that these conditions made it an ideal time to begin organizing in the South. The Lorry Mill was the largest in the state. On April 1st, 1,800 workers went out on strike. The company responded by evicting strikers from company housing and hiring deputies to harass picketers. As tensions escalated, police chief Adderhalt, along with some of his officers and company hired guns, went to a workers' camp. When Adderhalt was shot and killed by an unknown person, the police arrested dozens of strikers. Sixteen eventually stood trial, but no one was convicted. Then, in September, LMA Wiggins, a popular speaker who wrote songs for the strikers, was shot and killed at a workers' rally. The union lost its fight, and North Carolina remains one of the lowest unionized workforces in the nation. And this is Labor History in Two. 
On this day in labor history, the year was 1954. That was the day that marked the public downfall of Wisconsin Senator Joseph McCarthy. Senator McCarthy had become the public face of anti-communist hysteria during the Cold War. He used his position as senator to make wild accusations against alleged communists in the U.S. government. He ruined careers and ramped up public fears of a menacing communist threat. Public officials, labor leaders, university presidents, and Hollywood stars and directors all became potential targets of the Red Scare. The hysteria took a particular toll on the labor movement. In 1946, Congress overrode President Harry Truman's veto and passed the Taft-Hartley Act. The act required that all union leaders sign an affidavit that they were not communists. Those with ties to the Communist Party, or those who simply refused to sign the loyalty pledge on principle, faced expulsion from the labor movement. The communist purges ripped the labor movement apart, expelling some of the most progressive and radical leaders. Senator McCarthy was the public face of the anti-red witch hunts. But some in the public began to question his bullying tactics. Then the senator made an unfounded claim that the army had been infiltrated by communists. For two months, the American public watched as Senator McCarthy conducted televised hearings into the United States Army. Joseph Welch served as the chief legal counsel for the army. Senator McCarthy accused another lawyer of Welch's firm of having communist ties. Angered, Welch asked, Have you no sense of decency, sir? At long last. Have you left no sense of decency? Many in the public watched the testimony and wondered the same thing. McCarthy's popularity and power was finally checked. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 19... Rick Smith there with Labor History in Two. And um, two is about all we got left here. Out of here. Labor and Love Show. Go out with a particular favorite. Um, Adam George. And kind of a celebration of people who are have the courage with the childlike vision sleeping in to view. This is the B, and we're telling you how it is. Click and clack. We're telling you that if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. You don't have a seat at the table, negotiating table that is, or you work. You're on the menu. Never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. When I say labor, I mean you. Bye, everybody. See you next time. Yeah, that's sad to make.
stops A kid's out in the street collecting bubble tops Gone for cigarettes and matches in the shops Happy taking Madame Joy We've got live comedy.
Ain't no party like a dog party. <laughs> dog party at Mutiny Radio. Every Friday, dog party at Mutiny Radio. Happy hour. <laughs> 2781 21st Street. Happy hour. Mutiny Radio. FM. Here in SF. Calling all crusties, punks, and poses. Pick your posteriors up off the pavement. Pack up your pins and patches and prepare to party. The Pacific Northwest Vest Fest returns this Saturday only at the SeaTac Expo Center. Whether you're a leather lover or just a denim demon, if you're looking to dress to impress for less, do not stress. You'll find all the best in pre-distressed vests right here at the Pacific Northwest Vest Fest. With over 40 vendors selling countless crossover styles, you'll find the perfect thing for your scene. Metal, thrash, Walmart, high-vis, and everything in between. All in one place. One day only. Unless it's a jacket. If you need a jacket, take your square ass somewhere else. Never pay for fabric you don't need and ditch the sleeves, but save the rest for the Pacific Northwest Fest Fest this Saturday only at SeaTac. Bring a can of PBR, get it half price. Daddy, Daddy, what are we going to do today? At 2 p.m. on a Saturday afternoon? Oh, over there at the parklet in front of Atlas Cafe for Titans of Comedy. That, that's Titans of Comedy. Apparently, they've got great sandwiches, cafe drinks, and even some of my favorite beverages, like beer, wine, and sangria. All the things I drink to forget your mother. My new Uncle Blake says you smell like a brewery. What did I say about interrupting me? Anywho, right here on 20th and Alabama in the Deep Mission, paired with tasty comedy from Bay Area's favorite comics. For free! Every Saturday. Or at least the two Saturdays a month that the court mandates I have to see you. It's sunshine... And even in a drizzle, but not too much. Hey, Daddy, remember after soccer practice when it was raining and you didn't come? I really don't. Anywho. He took it with the freezers. Reservations. Reservations on Eventbrite. Back in public schools. <laughs> in tri-level, dual world of stand-up comedy. Laughter has value, and the unexpected laugh is priceless. Whoislive.com. Comedy local shows on sale now. Everyone that purchases a ticket will automatically be entered into a true drawing. Who wants to focus on the genre of stand-up comedy and those that... Who's that? Go to Whoislive.com for upcoming shows. Join us on a journey into the absurd. LSD fab acid and fapping, fapping and acid, acid fapping, fapping and acid, fap, 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 fap,